With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word, Cricket Podcast. It's season 14. It's episode 35. It's the tail end of August. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins with you. And Adam, you are speaking to me from Scotland. Yes, I am. Specifically in Edinburgh, and you are up there to do a lot of final words, Scotland, Lords Taverners, cricket playing, all the rest of it over the next few days. Uh, more specifically, I'm in Abs's living room, who's one of our kind listeners who's been a big part of the fun here when we, when we all met for the half marathon marathon earlier this year. Uh, I've just presented him with his baggy blue, his final word cap, which we've made up for the, uh, the game tomorrow night against one of his teams. I, I described them the other day as the electric flamingos. I've also described them in dispatch as the Edinburgh Flamingos. They're actually the eccentric Flamingos who are playing oh. tomorrow night. So just to get the uh, the specifics right there. So we've got a final word 11 uh, taking the field at 6pm, which is possible here in Scotland because of the you know light being... Um, being light for longer, if you like, poorly explained, but you know what I'm trying to say. Um, yep, Joe Root will be very happy with that. Yeah, yeah. And then we have... Um, the Tabs game, the Scottish Tabs against the 40s club on Wednesday, which we've got four representatives playing for the Scottish Taverners after my frolic with them last Friday at Arundel. So I'm feeling very tabby at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're sort of flipping back and forth. You're sometimes a taverner, sometimes trying to take them down. <laughs> you're a fifth column, you're a turncoat. You're the Billy Midwinter of the Lord's Taverners. Quite, quite, yeah. Um, although it, it is good that we were able to sort of do with what we're doing at the moment with them. Having, you know, it feels like we've come full circle with the summer, right? So we, I came up here on bank holiday weekend at the end of May, which was the weekend before the Ireland Test match. And, you know, you and I, from that point forward, had our foot down at, 100 mile an hour all the way through June and July and let's be honest you know most of August too and we're nearing the end of August bank holiday weekend which is the symbolic end of summer so I feel like I've mm-hmm. capped the, the the season pretty well uh, here in this part of the world whenever I walk around at Enbridge Jeff I'm like I wish to live here I wish mm-hmm. for this to be the place that one day um, I set up shop it'll never happen but it is gorgeous and we'll enjoy some fringe shows and uh, and I'll make this Scottish special at some point through tomorrow I've got a bunch of interviews lined up for that so it's pretty complicated to terrain Scottish cricket at the moment so I'm a little bit daunted by this but it'll all be all right on the night 
the Teshwa Pajara episode, that interview went up yesterday, a couple of days ago. By the time people will be listening to this, the Grace Harris interview is there as well. So we've been enjoying people's feedback on those. The Daniel Norcross Storytime episode, there's been a lot of stuff going up in, in the feed post-Ashes. Through that period, that June-July period, we had 2 million mm. people listen or 2 million listens to the final word across the Ashes. So it's a pretty wild sort of time that we're living in at the moment um, and we're, we're keen to, to keep making as many different kinds of shows as we can in this couple of months when we don't have a major series or tournament that we have to be at in order to... I don't know, I, I flex, flex our muscles in different departments, show the, the breadth of what we can do. And, and if you found the show recently, then you might not have realised that we do quite as many different styles of program as we actually make. That's it. Uh, and the Pajara interview has already been picked up by all the um, various cricket websites and Indian news sites as well with him fairly adamant that he's not retiring from Test cricket. I think that both of us and, and Brat as well fell into the trap of believing that he might have actually retired when left out of the Windy squad earlier this year, a couple of months ago, whatever it worked out to be. But no, he's determined to get back and uh, he makes that point pretty strongly. Also rather strident on the pitches in India. You know, like we kind of speculated on commentary that maybe, you know, if you're Virat Kohli or or Rohit Sharma or Jiteshwar Pajara, these senior players in the Indian Test lineup, you might be a little bit shitty that you kept getting dished up pitches that in all probability are going to see matches end in, you know, well, no more than four days, but probably inside three days. And it took him a while uh, when I asked him about that, but he did accept the premise of the question that he wants to see a better balance between bat and ball when playing at home. And good on him for saying that. As a senior player, I think he's earned the right to, to say what he reckons about these types of matters. And I'm sure that'll be picked up as a news point in the days to come as well. We've also had a bunch of people trying to work through a challenge that was inadvertently set on the <laughs> show in the last few days, which is can you link player to player back through Test cricket history in the fewest possible steps while going through every country that has played Test cricket? And there have been some pretty creative solutions to this, some interesting stuff popping up. One interesting one from Xavier Voigt-Hill, who detoured away from first-class cricket into List A cricket and has discovered the James Anderson overlap with Derek Randall, which is an extraordinary thing in itself. Oh, this is crazy. I mean, I reckon, you know, over the years, Jeff, on the Guardian Life blog, we, we've talked about this in so many different ways, and Daniel and I went through this on, on Storytime, as you say, but Derek Randall at age 49, representing Suffolk, a minor county, in a competition that was known as the National Westminster Bank Trophy in 2000. So the first round of that included um, the minor counties, and they were playing the Lancashire Cricket Board. I assume that's what it was. It must have been a knockout where the, where the minor counties were included. And yet, Derek Randall opened the batting against James Anderson in the May of 2000. So, And the better still, it was Anderson's list day taboo, and it was Randall's final list day game. And he played his first list day game, some 29 years before in 1971. So, you know, we're, we're talking about players overlapping. I don't think it gets much better than someone who had a 29-year list day career, finishing at 49 for a minor county, to pal up with Anderson, who's still going strong in, what, year 24 of his own professional career. And by the sounds of things, from hearing Jimmy talk on commentary in the last few days, he's got no intention of retiring. So the two of those players in just list day cricket alone, I know Anderson hasn't played in that format for probably two seasons but still their careers overlapping the way they have that was an unexpected joy 
And another one from Philip Cornwall. We mentioned the Guardian live blog. He's been uh, the man at the Guardian who's employed us to do that job for many years now, Jeff. He said that back in 2004, he wrote an article for the paper doing basically something similar to what what we've been doing in this little exercise. How's this? WG Grace played with Wilfred Rhodes, who played against George Headley, who played against Fred Truman, who played against Bill Laurie, who played against John Tracos. Now, John Tracos, of course, played for South Africa before they were booted out of international cricket and returned to play for Zimbabwe on the other side of that ban. He played test cricket against both Bill Laurie and Sachin Tendulkar, who, of course, played against a whole bunch of uh, players who are still going around at the moment. So all of those links are through test cricket. So that's, um, that's gold dust, I reckon. So that's eight. That's eight steps from... Grace through to now. Through to anyone, really. Nathan Lyon played against Tendulkar. Steve Smith played against Tendulkar. There's a number of them, right? So I think my way of doing it with a couple of Pakistanis and a couple of players that represented two countries was was more exotic. But I love the use of John Tracos. And and our Nerd Pledge CSI group have been diligently working on this behind the scenes, trying to find a way through every country using only one player. And, And the creative use of South Africa, because, you know, they played so early. Is there a way of getting to, you know, a fourth country using South Africa before World War One. So anyway, yep. all the fun of the fair. That's how we're... Yeah. That, that's that's what we do in our spare time. I don't think it counts to use... A player who's played for two countries, that doesn't knock off two countries. It has no. to be the country they were playing for at the time. And I wonder, nobody's used Yunus Khan yet because he would have been playing in that island match at Malahide. Ah. He goes back a very long way. I'm just throwing that out there. Yes. He would have played against some very early Bangladesh and Zimbabwe teams, for instance. Mm. That might that might be useful to you along the way. Now, New Zealand playing against the UAE. This is where I want to start uh, the show this week mm-hmm. because they lost a match, New Zealand, to the United Arab Emirates team who've been... I mean, you wouldn't necessarily say on the rise, but they've had these signs. They've had these moments. They they had moments in the the T20 World Cup qualifying period. They had moments in the 2015-50 over World Cup. Yep. Uh, frankly, before um, well, players of that era, a couple of them were involved in uh, sports betting problems and all of the rest of it. It's a curious one. Like, yes, it's a T20, not not an ODI, so it doesn't hold a whole lot of relevance for the 50 over World Cup coming up but New Zealand win the first and the third games in that series not by big margins you know they're 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 fairly well held in those games all three are played at Dubai but they got soundly beaten in the second game which feels significant so New Zealand make 142 for eight didn't bat well it was Mark Chapman who was the one who dug them out of trouble and got them up to that score of 142 he made 63 or 46 no one else made many Ayan Khan the 17 year old left arm orthodox spinner player of the match dismissed three of the top four and Mohamed Jawadullah, the left-arm seamer, took two for 16 off four overs. And then they chased it in a canter, three wickets down, in the 16th over. Mohamed Wasim, whose work we enjoyed so mm. much in that T20 World Cup qualifier when he gave himself the ball to bowl the 20th over at one point, um, and, and it didn't pan out so well. But good with the bat, 55 off 29 balls. Asif Khan, 48, not out off 29. And and played a bit more conservatively up to the last couple of overs where, where he went for it late in the piece. So against a, a good bowling attack, Southie, Jamison, Santner, Nisham, it's, it feels like a result with some significance in terms of UAE being able to compete at 
the higher level. Yeah, totally. Uh, first things first, uh, Mohamed Wazim, it did pay off him bowling that um, 20th over, Jeff. Remember, he, he got David Visa out from Namibia, which gave the UAE the victory and, and kicked Namibia out of the competition. So it was a dead rubber for the UAE, yeah. but had a lot on the line for Namibia. And it was Mohamed Wazim then. But yeah, uh, um, uh, you know, you look at someone like Ayan Khan, and this is where it gets interesting, right? So we make a lot of the ILT20 being... Uh, I'm not going to say a bad thing. That's that's the wrong word. That's the wrong descriptor. But it, it presenting a challenge, a rather um, a rather sophisticated challenge for players, administrators, decision makers around the world. Well, you know, Ayan Khan plays in that ILT20 as one of the. The, the locals. Remembering there are fewer locals in each side. Yeah. Um, the records don't count towards, say, your Crick Info profile because the games are being played in an associate nation. But for the UAE players, they're able to benefit from playing against some of the best T20 cricketers in the world. Take David Warner, who, because of the way the um, this, this release has gone out this morning from the ILT20, because the Big Bash is finishing on January the 26th this year, I think it is, it means that there is more time for the Australian and the Big Bash players to make it to this tournament. So a young 17 year old left arm spinner who's enjoyed success here um, knocking over New Zealand's top order will play against players like David Warner with all of that experience and it should in turn I wouldn't say it's the reason why these tournaments are being played in Dubai but an unintended and positive consequence is the UAE men's team should end up improving pretty quickly like we know that over years that the more high quality cricket you play against high quality opposition it tends to have an effect on your national team and and so it should prove for this UAE team who are some chance of making it through to the, the next team. 20 World Cup as well. They have their um, their next major qualifier coming up in October and November. Um, that's the Asia qualifier as part of the T20 World Cup that's to be played in, in the West Indies and America next year. They're, they're, it's being played against or in the um, hometown of their old rivals, Nepal. They had a couple of ding-dong battles against Nepal earlier this year. But, you know, they're a chance of making that tournament. And on the back of this, they might make life difficult if they get drawn in a weaker group. The David Warner thing's interesting. He wants to play in that Sydney test that finishes on January 7. He's a Sydney Thunder player. They signed him for two years last summer. So in theory, he's contracted to them. They play on January 8th and they play four games after that test match before the finals start. So assuming they make finals, they could be playing up until January 24th. Yep. And then the ILT20 starts on Jan 13, but goes through to Feb 12. So even if he played the full Big Bash, he could still play six or seven games yep. maybe in the, the ILT20. I wonder if he'd be playing a Big Bash match 24 hours after wrapping up his <laughs> test career. It would be, it'd be a sign of the times. But it, it's, it, it's curious what you're saying about those the UAE development of players I mean there's not much opportunity so I was looking at these squads from the previous season 23 to 24 players across each of the squads some of those available for part of the season and not for the other part and some of you know they were replacement players for for those who'd left and so on so there were three to four UAE players out of the 23 to 24 in each squad and in most of the 11s there was only one UAE player playing I, I read reports that it was supposed to be nine international players but a lot of them had 10 playing and only one UAE player occasionally there was two but even that one spot those two spots could have an effect because you look at Mohamed Wazim he was fourth in the comp for runs for instance yeah. in that ILT T20 so there were only three UAE players in the top 50 run scorers but there were three UAE players in the top 14 wicket takers, so they did a little better with the ball. There were seven in the top 50 wicket takers. So maybe like the opportunities are very small, but for that 
absolute handful of players across the six teams, it could still be a useful developmental tool. Yeah, and credit to New Zealand as well, right? Like, they don't need to be in the UAE at the moment playing a three-game T20 series. It's not as though, uh, you know, T20 is the format that sides are honing in on right now with a 50-over World Cup around the corner. They're doing their bit to um, develop the UAE. It's not their full-strength best first 11 team. They'll be featuring in England uh, starting on the 31st of August. They've got four T20s followed by four one-dayers in the build-up to the 50-over World Cup that starts, I think, on the 4th of October. So, you know, New Zealand, who have been the beneficiary of player movement um, and, and the transient player market, and you mentioned Mark Chapman before from Hong Kong where he was playing until a couple of years ago, and that's the easiest place to move as far as other senior full-member nations. If you want to play and you want to move, then New Zealand is, is not a bad way to do it. So, yeah, they're giving something back there. And, and hopefully this provides an incentive to other countries that, you know, when they're, when they're darting around the world trying to get ready for major tournaments, they might see the UAE as a, a worthwhile destination. India getting ready for the World Cup. Jasper Boomer is back. Yeah. Um, that's the big news there. So they're 2-0 up in the three-match series against Ireland at Malahide. They're playing T20 games there. Won the first on Duckworth, Lewis, Stern, and uh, and then won the second. But it was Boomer's bowling that was the story, really. Um, two for 24 in that first game. He got Andy Belburney out. Second ball, got Lorcan Tucker out in the first over of the match. Got Belburney again in the second match of the series. Two for 15 that time around for Boomer off four overs. So there was a lot of... The lack of surety about whether he'd be able to contend for the World Cup. They haven't announced a World Cup squad, India, but they've announced an Asia Cup squad, which is sort of their last play in the sand pit as far as selection goes before they have to whittle it down to the 15 for the World Cup. And it feels quite important. So Ajitagurka spoke to this today and uh, that's unusual to sort of have a selector speaking to the, the Indian squad. And it is a story of players returning from injury. So Boomer with the back ongoing back problems, KL Rahul with the, the thigh muscle tear that's kept him out of all cricket since the IPL. Um, Shreyas I with Shagger's back that saw him finish up early in the Border Gavaskar hasn't played at all since. I don't think Jeffy had surgery in May in the UK. So these players coming back, the most important is Boomer. Two for 24 in the first game, two for 15 in the second. Balberni did make runs, by the way, in that second T20s, given mm. up the captaincy of the T20 side to Paul Sterling. Since we interviewed him in, in June, but yeah, he made 75 from 51. So it was a closer result for them. The first one was a bit of a, a lottery with the rain and, and DLS and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, I guess any trepidation that, that India might have had around Boomer will be dealt with via that. They've got Sanju Sampson in the Asia Cup squad as cover for KL Rahul. They don't expect he'll be right to go straight away. So the, the Asia Cup also starts on the 31st of August where India are playing in Sri Lanka, but Pakistan are playing in Pakistan and, and never will the roads meet until, I guess, the, the pointy end of the competition. That was the, the compromise struck when... Was it originally that, that Pakistan were refusing to go to the World Cup, at least, you know, in, in, as far as the yes. um, as far as the, the posturing was concerned? And India was saying they wouldn't participate in the Asia Cup, but as ever, these things all get sorted out in the end. From memory, Pakistan was supposed to host the Asia Cup and India was saying they wouldn't go and Pakistan was saying in that case they wouldn't go to the World Cup. Right, there you go. So I might have that wrong, but that's... No, no, that's that, that, feels, that, feels, that feels about right. So, yeah, other, other noteworthy points in, in the uh, Asia Cup squad. Surya Kumar Yadav keeps his spot, having done poorly in the West Indies one-day internationals. Hardik Pandya's still there. Vedra Chahal's been dropped, so the wrist-spinning option for India for the World Cup looks like it'll just be called Deep Yadav. And they're using the two left-arm all-rounders, so Jadeja and Akshar Patel, but no Ashwin and no Washington Sundar. So, I mean, talk about sport for choice. I mean, India's World Cup squad's going to be an absolute beauty. 
duty. But yeah, it feels like we have a much better idea now of what their selectors are thinking. And now they've got those three first choice players back from injury. Well, home World Cup. It's been won at home the last three times, India in 2011. Uh, England in, in 2019 and Australia in, in 2015. So they'll go in, regardless of form, they'll go in as the raging hot favourites. It's funny that those three countries should be the last three ones to host the World Cup. Just funny how things pan out sometimes. <laughs> um, Australia making some changes to their one-day T20 yep. squads as well. This is interesting. So you talked with Daniel about the fact that Labuschagne would be captaining Australia A in 50-over cricket. Well, not anymore because he's replacing Steve Smith in the squad to go to South Africa and play first team 50 over stuff. Smith apparently has a hand injury. Mitchell Stark has a groin problem, so he's not going. That means Spencer Johnson will stay on. He was in the T20 squad, but he'll stay on in the 50 over squad for Stark. Mitchell Marsh will captain the ODIs as well. Pat Cummins is going, but not playing. What's the deal with it? I think this is fine. I think this is like having Cummins with the group ahead of a World Cup. So Mitch Marsh is going to captain, but but Cummins with his own hand injury, remembering that he... Um, that, that this uh, this hand injury was obtained at the very start of the Oval Test match and Cummins played throughout the, the five days encumbered by that. But yeah, the, the, the Smith injury, I don't think we knew about. I, I feel like we haven't talked about it at the very least and it was it was dropped in. But I reckon that presents a great opportunity for, for Labuschagne, you know, like all these one-day matches in South Africa, if he were to do well there, like I don't think he'll leapfrog Smith, but like you couldn't rule it out. Because it feels like there'll be room for one of them, right? Like there'll be a, there'll be a Labuschagne or a Smith sort of gluey, anchory kind of slot in the 15 or even in the 11. But in all probability, they won't have a backup anchor. Like they'll have backup all-rounders, either backup spinner, backup quicks, but you wouldn't have necessarily two players or one player on the bench for a role that could be um, played by somebody else. Like we saw in 2019, they had Marsh on the bench for Kawaja in that role, for example. So, but yeah, I guess this is a, a, a great chance for Labuschagne to stake his credentials uh, in the country where he made his one-day international 100. It feels like a long time ago now, the, in the weeks before the pandemic, back in the, in the town where he was born. So, yeah, he's into the team. I watched Spencer Johnson bowl in a 100 game last week. He just looks like an international bowler. I watched a lot of him on the um, streams towards the end of last year's Sheffield Shield season. We know that he came within an inch or two of getting picked for the Ashes squad as an extra fast bowler. According to a report I read, he was put on standby for the Ashes squad for the fifth test match at the Oval. I didn't, maybe that was publicly known uh, and I didn't, I didn't, um, I wasn't as sharp to this information as I should have been, but it gives a sense of where he's sitting in the pecking order. And yeah, if they're going to have a spare quick uh, for the World Cup in India, a left arm option with Stark might not be a bad one. I think Steve Smith will get the Steve Smith card to play, even if Labuschagne makes 900 runs in that series. I don't think there's a selection panel that's going to leave Steve Smith out of the World Cup squad. True. And more shifts with the fixture, of course. <laughs> um, Nagraj Golapudi from Crick Info has been the busiest guy in the world over the last three months just reporting on World Cup fixturing. So Hyderabad this time, this is the third city where the police force has kicked up a fuss and said, we can't handle security for a Pakistan game. So they've got back-to-back matches on the 9th and the 10th of October, which they're requesting to move now. It's the Pakistan-Sri Lanka game on this occasion and the, the local police force are not happy there. The tickets still aren't on sale. We've got another, what, four days at the time of recording before the tickets go on sale. But just as well, why would you buy a ticket when you've got no idea when the game will be? Yep, it's all been said 
by us already on the podcast um, in, in, in previous episodes that this is a, a symbol uh, of where this World Cup's at. I thought it was instructive that the Hyderabad Cricket Association was seeking permission from the BCCI about rescheduling those games on the 9th and or the 10th. It wasn't about seeking permission from the ICC because we know that it's not the ICC who are in charge of this particular tournament. The, yeah, the, it'll be their events business that coordinate on the ground, I'm sure, but really the power around this particular 50-over tournament um, lies wholly and solely with the BCCI and, and thus that's where the scrutiny should lie when it comes to these very, very late schedule changes which if it were in any other country would just be laughed away but the fact that it's this tournament at this time you just kind of shrug your shoulders and go well that's just the way it's going to be and you couldn't rule out this being the last change either. And the the ICC Cricket World Cup mascots got released this week with some, some EA Sports 1998 animation and it's just, I'm sure it's just a coincidence, a pure coincidence, that they seem to have a link to the ICC's program of trying to sell NFTs to people. Well, it jumped out at me off the press release, right? So where these mascots come from, uh, apparently, uh, is a, a place called the Cryptoverse. Yes, and, and what a coincidence, Deirdre Chambers, the Cryptos are the ICC's NFT business. So it doesn't say explicitly in the media release that these are related to the the cryptos that they've been um, hawking in the last 12 to 18 months. But, I mean, it feels like a matter of time before those two threads are tied together, doesn't it? I mean, where mm-hmm. even the, um, the video they put out um, with the uh, infam- I think the punters are being like people are being asked to nominate names or, or something ridiculous but just the imagery used with them it, it does feel like we're we're trending down the path of this being another way of making money through the NFT caper which you know we, we've again we've had our say on that before but it, it does feel like a slippery slope and in five or ten years time I think we're going to laugh at how much money the cricket's collected from this part of the uh, shall we say this part of the internet uh, this part yeah. of the metaverse or, or however you want to frame it but um yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like this is a coincidence. This part of the broader ecosystem of suckers and, and the gullible and, and pe- including a bunch of people who probably can't afford to be being ripped off in that particular way. We'll come back to the ICC hackathon a bit later in the show, but <laughs> before we get to the break, we have to have ourselves a little bit of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. The game that we play with the nice people who listen to this show who decide that they want to support it in practical terms. They do this. They send in donations, contributions, in amounts that correlate to a cricket number and we have to work out what the number means. Our Nerd Pledge comes from Randolph Brazier, who I met at the Oval during maybe it was the World Test Championship final. One of our listeners who I caught up with to say good day and, and sit and watch an hour or so of play in the field. It is £2.46, so the number is 246, and there's a clue attached. Cool. Yeah, how did that go, yelling out your window in Lisbon, uh, Nerd Pledge? Was, was it, uh, give me a sense of uh, who, who you're... What's the, what does it look like out the window? Uh, it's, it's sort of apartment buildings, and, um, and then you can look down to the water, but there are a few different people yelling out all kinds of things at different <laughs> points of the day or night at the moment, so I don't think my contributions really stand out in any way. Okay, noted. Uh, Randolph's clue for you, Jeff. Love your work, guys. Uh, my nerd pledge of 246 for the best duck you'll ever see in the field. Well, there was only one place that I wanted to go with this, Adam, and it is about the best duck that you might see on a cricket field, notably Plucker Duck, a duck that we've <laughs> talked about many times before, for playing in the Dean Jones testimonial uh. match in 1994. Now, 
I, I wanted to say when I started looking for evidence of this, it is very hard to find as the years go by. And, and I mean, having spent a, a bit of time traveling around Italy and so on the last few weeks and looking at archeological sites and so on, you, you, there's information loss with each, with each generation that goes by information is lost. And I feel that maybe Pluckaduck is like some stone tablet where the, the runes are slowly eroding away. There's, there's less and less to be found. The scorecard in particular is no longer in existence. It oh. used to be out there on a website called cowboyhat.com.au and sadly uh, whoever was running Cowboy Hat hasn't paid their their um, their hosting rights because the URL's been hoovered up by somebody to try to be resold. We've got to get it back. I mean, I reckon... If I recall correctly, this scorecard was a copy-paste job from the newspaper the following day, mm-hmm. which meant on the card, which I have seen with my own two eyes, it read P. Duck to denote that Plucker had both bowled and batted. Um, mm-hmm. So if we got the microfiche out, the microfilm out, and went down to the State Library, we will be able to find um, the scorecard from the Dean Jones testimonial match, and we can, on the Final Word webpage, yep. host this scorecard as the least we can do. I have had a dig through the 94 papers that I could find via the online archive um, and found some match reports but haven't found a scorecard out okay. yet. If you don't know about the work of Plucker Duck, perhaps if you're in the UK particularly, uh, it was most of the time allegedly Mark McGann was the TV producer who was in the duck suit on the show Hey Hey It's Saturday, which, um, which had a, a checkered record over the years. Um, but it did heavily feature a man in a duck suit running around doing stupid things. He was, in 1997, nominated for the most popular comedy personality at the Logies. You had Patrick Bramall on for his Logies <laughs> tilt a few weeks ago. And it's a fictional character. It's not even... It's not a personality, but... Fair enough. The guy in a duck suit was... Yeah, Pluck a Duck was a, was a gem. Do you remember the music? Can't say I do. Oh, what was it? Um... Pluck a duck, pluck a duck, not a chicken or a cow. Pluck a duck right here, right now. And then they'd spin the thing around and he'd grab, right. you know, if you're the punter, you'd pull the duck off and you'd, you'd the smaller duck, that is, the, the yep. replica pluckers, and you'd find out what you'd won. Uh, I think well, you could win the you could win the Nissan car, couldn't you? That was the whole thing. You, I can tell you about the wheel, the, the spin the, the wheel, wheel that Plucker yep. used to have. The, the wheel was rescued from Sunshine Tip. Sunshine is a suburb <laughs> in Melbourne. In 2003, there was a news report about a fifth-generation car Carnival worker named Charlie Miller happened to be out at Sunshine Tip as the wheel and other assorted Channel 9 props were getting the heave-ho. Charlie said, I was there dumping a load of rubbish when I saw this bunch of guys unloading a whole lot of unusual (laughs) stuff from a truck. There were these sets that looked like they were the inside of a spaceship. Don't know what that was all about, but after they'd pulled out, I wandered over and grabbed the wheel. He held onto the wheel for several years and then later put it up for auction. I don't know what it fetched, but I know that if you had known about it, Adam, Bloody you would have been in there. I was going to say, had I, the had I known about it, I'd have, I'd have Plucker's wheel now. There's almost nothing more on brand than me buying Plucker Duck's wheel. We, we, um, I'd spent quite a lot of time talking about Plucker Duck with uh, Greg Baum from The Age when um, of course you did. Gilly and I... I don't think Bredig was there. Gilly and I interviewed Bormy about the 93 Ashes for the greatest season that was, 93. The context was that they were sending, like getting at the perspective of being on the 93 Ashes but trying to follow the 93 footy season. And they were sending videos back um, to England on tour and they would have mm-hmm. like um, footy nights where they would watch games from like three weeks before on the VHS on the, you know, they, they'd put them on the projector and, and all the rest of it. But on that trip, Trevor Marmalade and Pluck a Duck came out and I think it was Trevor Marmalade. They were there, yeah. They came yeah, out and Tre- uh, Trevor was there. And they um and, and yeah, Pluck a Duck 
you know, was involved in one of the tour games. I don't think he was on the on the park itself, but they did like segments and so on. What an absolute right. what an absolute junket that would have been for what would have been like three minutes of television, getting to spend multiple weeks on an Ashes tour. Yeah, well, there's you can find if you dig around the clip of Plucker jumping the turnstile at Lords and running in wearing a jacket and tie, <laughs> um, and you. <laughs> And you can also find the clip of him going into Australian training and facing Merv Hughes and belting him over square leg with That's a right. shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so clearly Mark McGann could handle a stick. Um, it, you know, wasn't completely out of place on the cricket field. So when when he rocks up for this game, and, and I should say in looking around for this, I also found there's actually a website called heyhey.tv, which is run by whoever owns all the footage these days, Summers, Carol or whatever the production company is, where they have a membership structure. Get this, they say, create your account, membership from $6.95 a month or $59.95 a year, <laughs> unlimited viewing, all new content added regularly. What new content are you adding from fucking Hey Hey at Saturday? Well... <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's paying? Who's paying sixty who's bucks? Paying a year? seven bucks a month. <laughs> sixty bucks a year to watch Hey Hey clips. The show finished twenty four years ago, um, and that's sad. And it is Netflix sad that Hey Hey is hey seven bucks a month. Yeah, like they're, they're at least making some new stuff for you. Like. I want to know. I want to know that the profile. Yeah, you know, when like companies try and work out what their median customer looks like, what is the median um, customer or the you know the, the profile they can pull together demographically of someone who spends fifty nine ninety five a year for unlimited access to a Saturday archive. Oh. All, all I know is the list should be forwarded to the AFP. That's all. That's all I, that's all I can put together. So, so that exists. That's a thing that I um, had. I had a bit more research time today. I probably would have signed up for it as a final word business expense just to dig around and find what was in there. We might come back to that on a future show. But I did find the Sports Tonight highlights with Tim Webster about the Dean Jones <laughs> testimonial in 94. So 40 mm. over match at the MCG, nearly 30,000 people came to watch this game, Adam. <laughs> 30,000 people um, put money down to come through the turnstiles. Maybe some of them are signed up to heyhey.tv. And look, they got a good game. Um, the Allen Border 11 make 285. Dino, direct hit, run out of Matthew Elliott to start things off. Just play the hits, Dino. Jamie Siddons makes 74. He can really play at that time. Border plays, makes 42. Jason Dunstall, your mate, makes 48. And, um, I, and I remember they were doing updates on the ABC. I don't know where we were um, that afternoon, but I was with my parents in the car. And we were, you know, as I think it would be quite relatable, you listen to the ABC updates from Sheffield Chill Games and all the rest of it. Well, they had someone do, oh, you and I have both done them, haven't we, for the, you know, the updates mm -hmm. from... Round from the grounds. Round the grounds, exactly. Yep. With the galloping gasometer at VFL Park. But whoever was, they were doing, and we were like willing Dunstall to 50, as you would, right? But yeah, mm -hmm. dismissed two. I, can't, I think he was out leg before for 48, is my recollection. Anyway, Dunstall could play. Well, he, uh, he gets dropped off Carlton full forward Stephen Kernahan at Deep Square Leg by Gus Logie. <laughs> Gus Logie puts down Dunstall um, and then comes on to bowl and bowls Doug Walters, who's also playing. Oh, he yeah. got Dougie out in 1994. Um, he probably wasn't in, in peak condition. But, uh, yeah, so, so Siddons, Siddons is doing the business. Merv Hughes takes a screamer at backward square leg. 
um, and off Greg Ritchie, I think. And then he's fielding literally in the crowd for Jamie Siddons, who's hitting sixes. So Merv jumps the fence and, and runs up and stands among the punters who love that, obviously. Gary Ablett Sr. is playing. It'd be odd if Junior was playing in 94, I suppose. So he would have barely been born. Gary Ablett Sr. gets Jamie Siddons out, caught by Footscray champion Doug Hawkins. <laughs> so it's a very footy cricket crossover here. <laughs> Doug Hawkins immediately gets hugged by Plucker Duck, who's fielding for the Jones team. Ablett also gets David Hooks out and then takes two blinding catches off Alan Border and Rod Marsh. How is it if you like, I mean, I know life didn't turn out particularly well for Gary Ablett Sr. Um, in, in terms of the you know, between the ears stakes, but um, if, well, you, you couldn't, you couldn't deny natural, natural athleticism, the ability to just rock up in a game like that and dominate actual top line cricketers. Bring back the testimonial game. You know, the nineties was such a rich time for these. There was the Dino game you're referring to there with all these footy stars playing, you know, Jeff Fennick, Molly Meldrum, you name it. You know, it was a, a grouping of pop culture. It was a grouping of Melbourne <laughs> interests, celebrities, you might say, um, uh-huh. with a couple of other star cricketers from other states. We had the you know, famously the Alan Border testimonial game with Fatty's catch. We had the Ian. I'll Healing. tell you what, Gary Gary Ablett's catch, the second one off Rod Marsh, Gary Ablett dives forward full length scoops it in and lands on his face while holding onto the ball. That is a hell of a lot better than Fatty's catch. Fuck Fatty's catch. (laughs) Gary Ablett's catch outdoes that by the length of the straight. I reckon that was in front of the big scoreboard as well when when there was such a thing as big scoreboard and small scoreboard at the MCG, out towards the Mm -hmm. Ponsford stand goals. And, you know, like... The, the the Ian Healy testimonial match was when Pat Rafter hit Courtney Walsh for multiple sixes. There's the David Boone testimonial where they broke up um, the match into um, allotments of 25 over, so 25, 25, 25, 25, which, um, as we know, later got adopted by, was it the Ford Ranger Cup, what Mercantile yeah. Mutual turned into some years later. So that, that was a thing for a time. There, there was a Ricky Ponting one down at Launceston, but it wasn't televised. When the next Australian great who retires, we should be advocating for a testimonial match, including a bunch of footballers. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there were a bunch of footballers playing here and Plucker Duck was out there again when Dino went out to bat. I don't know what Plucker was doing. Was he fielding for the other side at that point? <laughs> but he runs out and gives Dino a stuffed Plucker Duck, um, which Dino promptly hits away. Uh, I also read in a Steve War uh, biography that they used to, on the, I think on the 93 tour, they used to give a stuffed plucker to whoever had most recently made a duck in the Australian team who had to carry it around with them until they got to hand it on to the next person. So there was a very strong plucker duck theme. There was a a cultural thread running through Australian cricket at this time. Dino, 50 off 38 balls, out for 58. Dermot Brereton takes the catch, your other favourite, and gets booed roundly by the crowd for doing so. Final word guest. Final word guest, Dermot Brereton. Yeah, final word guest, um, Dermot Brereton drops David Gower, who makes 78 not out. Gus Logie makes up for his shelled catch by making 81. Gary Ablett Sr. hits the winning runs. And as you say, yeah, Molly Meldrum's on the field at one point. Jeff Fennick's running around. Plucker's bowling was not featured on the tape, so I can't find that. If you can find the scorecard, let us know. It could hold the key to the 246 for Randolph Brazier, but... It might also just be a simple, a simple typographical error that Dino's team won making 286. Could that be about the best duck that we ever saw on the field? Let us know, Randolph. Pluck a duck, not a chicken or a cow. Thank you, Randolph. We're going to take a break on the final word on the other side of it. We've got a lot of women's cricket to get through. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. 
This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We were talking about the UAE cricket team earlier. Well, the UAE women's team are one player fewer after Mahika Gower was poached by England. She qualifies for England. She's into the England squad at the age of 17. Super tall, left armour, swings it. You've heard Adam rhapsodise about the potential that this player has from watching her bowl at the Fairbreak tournament. Lived in England until she was eight years old, hence she's available to play for England. International debut at the age of 12 for the UAE, so she'd have to be up there. I know the, the, the record holder off the top of my head is 12 years and 70 days maybe for Pakistan because I was looking at that in relation to Kim Garth, who once held the record for being the youngest. So there have been several younger players since, but so I don't know where on the number of days Mahika Gower <laughs> sits for the UAE. But anyway, she's um, she's in the England squad to play against Sri Lanka in the next few weeks. Oh, I just want to say off the top that I, I really do respect the view of um, Andrew Nixon, who's been a guest on the show before, and others like that who, who find it difficult to be thrilled about this. Um, in that it, it's great for English cricket, and it's great for Mahika that she can play for England, but also it does weaken mm. the UAE team. She is going to be if not the best, one of the best bowlers in the world. Imagine what her career could look like, what she could do for cricket in the UAE had she stayed the whole way through. But here's this prized opportunity to play for England. And, and so it plays out. She's been you know, at school this year on scholarship. She's been in the setup in, in Manchester for a couple of years now. She's shown enough with moments for the originals and in the Rachel Hayho Flint and they, they made it to the, um, the Charlotte Edwards finals this year, the Thunder. So it all makes sense uh, in the context of looking forward to the future. And it's an important part of this England squad, right? So Bess Heath also gets her opportunity. That's not necessarily about, you know, this Sri Lanka series that's coming up, although she did play well against Australia A. It's about like, where does Bess Heath fit into the England setup in sort of two or three years time, or maybe even next year's World Cup, right? So she's been part of the Diamonds team that won the Rachel Hayho Flint trophy last year. She made an important 40 odd in that Lord's final. She's averaged in the 40s this year in domestic cricket. She's got a great pair of gloves on her, but she's not going to keep here because Amy Jones is there, but they'll get her in the side. She'll get some games for England. Hypercourse to we cite a lot on the show. He made a, an interesting uh, observation through all this as well, because there has been criticism of, of the, not omissions, but the resting and r- rotation that's going on here. So we're seeing Eccleston and Dunkley missed a lot, all of these Sri Lanka games. Sibber Brunt is missing the T20s. Danny White's missing the one-dayers. Like some criticisms where well, you're not showing Sri Lanka respect. But the other side of this is that there's kind of no other way to get games into players other than getting games into players. And you've got to pick the right time of the cycle. You can't play speculative picks five minutes before a World Cup. And the truth is the next Women's World Cup is only 15 months away or something like that when we go to Bangladesh late next year. So there's a very small window here. They couldn't do it in the Women's Ashes. That wasn't realistic. But they kind of can get away with it here. And again, I understand that it doesn't necessarily show complete and thorough respect to Sri Lanka. But if you're England, you're not as worried about that, you're worried about your own interest and your own interest is seeing whether Mahika and Bess Heath can, can step up and play. And this seems to be a, a timely and clever way of doing it. Well, there's also the, 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 the comment, the repost of like, well, why are they being rested if they're going to then go and play the WBBL? Well, because the WBBL is probably the best professional development environment that players can have. And if they can get picked, you know, they get a long stint of games. They get a couple of months to really bunker down in a team. They get to swap notes with other players from different places around the world. It it has been the key part in making so many players, taking them up the, the rungs in terms of their own performance. So 
that isn't something that you want to miss out of in favour of playing in the same international environment that you've just spent the last few months as part of. Changing that up and having that variety is likely to be more beneficial for your more established players than making them just go through the motions of playing endless bilateral cricket. Yeah, and there's also a, a, a similar argument that runs, how can you rest someone like um, Sophia Dunkley or Danny Wyatt who played in the fair break, right? So, you know, why can they be fresh enough to play fair break in, I think we were there in April, it might have been May, something like that, start of the season and not be fresh enough or ready to play a tournament or, or, a, or a bilateral series in September. Is there a disconnect there? Well, the truth is they're able to make good money in two weeks of work, right? So, you know, they can manage the situation. None of these players are going to fair break without consulting the ECB. They've got to get their NOCs. They've got to have yep. conversations up the chain. This would have been planned out months in advance. And, you know, Eccleston has played next to no domestic cricket this year, sure. but her workloads have been through the roof because she bowled a shitload of overs in the test match and they're going to India later this year and playing another test match and guess who's going to do the bulk of the bowling there? S. Sure. Eccleston. So, it's, so not, it's not all one, you know, it's not one size fits all. It's like with men's cricket, we accept this is part of it that you see players rested strategically and at times it works in keeping with the cycle and, and this is just another um, step in the direction of women's cricket being more like the men's game and and, and that professional model becoming uh, you know, more repeatable. And I'm not saying all of those things are good, but this is that. This is an example of that. Even if they hadn't played fair break, these players would still have been candidates to be rested because it's about a mental break as much as a physical yeah. one after, after playing an Ashes series, which is you know, has more hype, more attention. It, it is a different level of intensity. The actual workload in fair break, which only takes a couple of weeks and is a number of short games, isn't that intense to begin with. I don't think it would have made a difference if they had or hadn't played fair break. That wouldn't have come into consideration at all. I improbable. You're right. They play six games of T20 cricket. And yes, I, I, I share that view. The other um, grievance is that Tammy Beaumont's not selected after making a century this for the one, Fire. Can and I jump in on this? Sure. Because this, like, this, this irks me. Like this is, this is bullshit. This is, the most recency bias kind of thinking in terms of cricket like oh oh well she just made some runs oh she just made a hundred uh, in the hundred okay cool um i mean a the hundred is not the highest possible standard of cricket going around like there are good players in it and there are some other players who are making up the numbers at various points that's not necessarily a, a defining argument but b tammy beaumont has had a decade of being not very good at T20 cricket. Now, that is not to say that she can't improve and that she can't challenge for a spot and that she can't lay down a case to do so, but a few weeks of good cricket is not laying down that case. That's not how it works. You don't, on the basis of a couple of performances, get to say, oh, no, she's clearly switched gears, levelled up, whatever your cliche is, kicked it up a notch, bam, because who knows? Uh, that... There's no conclusive evidence for that. You need a stronger evidence base to be able to say, like, this player has had umpteen opportunities for years and years and years and years, and she's a terrific player, and I loved watching her double, I watched every ball of her double hundred in the test match, and it was a thrill. She's terrific in 50-over cricket. She has always struggled to have quite the scoring rate required in T20 cricket. She's never been quite fast enough, particularly at the top of the order where you need players to, to be able to take it on at a strike rate of one 21-30 plus and really push games along and too often she's struggled to do that. It's perfectly reasonable that she's not in contention. They've given her the opportunity. She hasn't yet taken it. Let her make the case for a longer period of time. Yeah, and look, she might end up playing in that role uh, that she did in the 2020 World Cup. Uh, by that, I mean the year 2020 when she came in as the number six. Look, John Lewis, when he was asked about Beaumont and to an extent Lauren Winfield-Hill, who's lost her spot in the squad as well, they kind of know what those players do. 
because they are so experienced. So if they keep making their case at domestic level, if Tammy Beaumont goes and blitzes Sri Lanka, again, with respect to what Sri Lanka is doing, but let's keep it in perspective, there is a multi-speed economy in women's cricket and the, and the side that Sri Lanka field in all probability will be the equivalent in terms of standard of, of uh, not even a domestic team in England at the moment. Now, I wish it wasn't the case, but that's just the way things are. Now, if Beaumont dominates Sri Lanka, well, that's what she's expected to do. I think it's more important that Bess Heath gets a look. I think it's more important that they they frame it up in terms of someone like Alice Capsey, where she sits at the moment, mm. and and getting more international games. I remember when Pat Howe was running the, the men's professional setup in Australia, spoke to him once about the optimal amount of games you want to get into a cricketer before a World Cup cycle. This will be that. And Beaumont is a fully known quantity. A little bit like Freya Davies as well. She's been left out. Although with Davies, it might be that they're just looking past her a little bit. I see that Lauren Filer with an extra yards in both squads. Izzy Wong's in the T20 squad, albeit not in the one-day squad. Of course, we've already mentioned Mahika. It may well be that Freya Davies is viewed in a similar way that, well, we kind of know what she does. Let's use this as an opportunity to see some other cricketers. So Davies, by the way, is in that WBBL draft for overseas players. We saw a, a release come out overnight. Kate Cross's there as well in the draft she hasn't played in the big bash for i don't think it's been quite a few years hasn't it she played a season mm. for the the heat at the very for start Brisbane, wasn't it yeah the very start i think she played one for the, the scorchers as well so they're looking to get over to australia during the winter puja vastrika from india the hard-hitting all-rounder is also in that list of names that came through from from cricket australia but a bit of a digression but yeah still i i wasn't like you know i i kind of viewed it as a worthwhile press conference, right? This is where you want to hear from the coach and hear their logic for each player. And he, the, 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 the um, reportage I read of it and a couple of clips of audio as well, it all seemed fairly logical. And, um, you know, they will win all of those games against Sri Lanka. You know, again, I can't tell you how much I wish it wasn't this way, but we know barring, you know, they could play, they could simulate those games 100 times and England are going to win 98 of them. And if it works out a different way, I'll be the first to celebrate that. It would require Atapatu to completely dominate and, and take a yeah. game away from England on her own. And she could but it's it's less likely than any other scenario um, at the moment due to the the gap that the the higher paying nations are able to provide um, when you compare them to the, the teams lower mm. down the ranking. So yeah, this all seems like it's about next year's World Cup, not about what's happening uh, through September in England. Yeah, the, the longer time's gone on, the more it's underlined that. And we saw Adapatu destroy New Zealand on her own a, a few weeks ago and, and it was magnificent to watch. But um, that's that's what it takes for Sri Lanka to, to overturn teams who who are above them in the pecking order at the moment. The South African women's team, yeah. a fair bit of, um, well, the things, unsecured items sliding around the deck in rough seas at the moment. So Sune Luce, who wasn't formally full-time captain until after the World Cup final at home because she was a, a, an interim captain initially after they'd pushed out for Kirk, becomes full-time captain. Six months later, um, as they're heading off to Pakistan, she's not the captain anymore, looks probably like Laura Wolfhart's going to take over in that job, but she's also being referred to as an interim captain at the moment. So... It's curious, it's complicated. Chloe Tryon's not going. She was formerly the vice-captain. She's on personal leave and, and won't be on that trip. So there's a, a fair bit of, I mean, suggestions of discontent, you would say, which have been there in the departures of all of the high-profile players who've quit the South African women's team over the last year or so. Lizelle Lee, Dano Fanny-Kirk, Mignon Dupriya, Shabnam Ishmael have all retired. Marisane Cap still floating about. As we've, we've, been, we've had a watching brief on whether she's going to sack off the, the national team or, you know, whether, whether she comes in as captain for a period of time. But it, it looks like that might be... Wolfhart to do it as Generation Next, but but she's she's quite a, a sort of softly spoken, quiet. I mean, she's 
steely and determined, but she's not necessarily going to be the rousing leader of a group from our impressions of having spoken to her over the years. Well, it's a mess. Uh, this started with Danae Van Eekirk at the start of the year. They still make the World Cup final, nearly pinch the bloody thing. Uh, and since then, you know, they lose Shabnam Ishmael, who's showing through the 100 that she's still as quick as anyone in the game. She she is retired because the system is not set up to let her earn the amount of money she could make on the circuit. And, and she's... Um, you know, clearly um, not thrilled with the way uh, things have been travelling in South African cricket. You touched on Chloe Tryant. She was the vice-captain. So, you know, they lose their skipper and their vice-captain for this Pakistan series. And if Laura Woolvart does take over, she's going to have to try and keep things on the rails. It, it, it seems so, so unnecessary the way this has played out. I mean, they've had the same coach for over a decade and maybe that can lead to a... It can lead to a, uh, some frustrations, but... Yeah, you know, they've just made a World Cup final. And, and, and Fidos Mundo, who's been writing about this, went into that um, inconsistency there where CSA referred to Sune Luce as the interim captain and yet Sune herself referred to herself as the full-time captain after the, the T20 World Cup earlier this year. Uh, Danae Van Niekerk's been um, really forceful in her commentary around about around what happened off the field and and the, the dressing room having that that divide in it. And I think she said only f- four players got in touch with her um, when she announced her international retirement, right? So there's clearly something going on beneath the surface in that in that dressing room. So, yeah, for a side that we followed pretty closely since the, well, I was going to say the 2017 World Cup, but before the 17 World Cup, really, we were uh, really invested in, in the way they were going in the build-up to that tournament that, that six years on from that, they've made two more World Cup, well, another World Cup semi in, in Australia and, and the World Cup final uh, at home earlier this year and, and the surge of enthusiasm around that team uh, when they played that final against Australia. Compare that in February to now in August and it, it beggars belief that they're in this situation. So let's hope that if it is Laura Woolvart that she can keep things as, as they should be and, and it will maybe there'll need to be some off-field change to satisfy Sunay Luce to even play because if she's leaving the side as captain, you've got to question, like, might she find herself... Mm wanting to leave the national setup as well in favour of playing on the T20 circuit. I don't know, but this is not, not ideal, far from it. Most of their best players are in the 100 in England at the moment, where Shabnam Ishmael's second on the wickets, takers list, uh, Marazan Cap in there at equal third spot as well. The Southern Brave Welsh Fire Northern Superchargers are all guaranteed to go to finals with a round to go. I listened to the show last week with some dismay as you and Daniel nominated us to take over <laughs> sharing a hundred franchise. Apparently we're all Welsh now and um, those at Wales should embrace us with open arms to run their operation for them. Is that my misunderstanding something here? Sadly, the, uh, sadly, the phone call never came. I've, I've got, I've got, um, I'm, I'm, I'm joined, I'm joined by one of Abs's animals. Which dog's uh, jumping on me here? Hildegard, this is who Winnie, I don't know if it'll come up at the back of your shot here, Jeff. It might not. This won't work very well on the podcast, but it might if um, people are watching on, on, the, on the YouTube feed. Uh, Hildy was um, pals with Winnie when we were up here for the half oh, hour right. earlier this year. I can so. see why. Hello, Hildy. Um, what was I saying? Uh, yes, uh, uh, yes, the Welsh Fire. We, we did nominate ourselves to be our prospective uh, co-chairs and then Daniel jumped in on that as well. I'm not sure what it's called when, when three people are chairing an organisation. But, yeah. They're still co, still, it's like every member of every... Um 
AFL club had like multiple captains for a couple of years there. They yes. would, they'd have like six co-captains. I don't think it worked That's out right. so well. But. That's right. I remember Winston Kilda had about four of them. But yeah, no call from the ECB, uh, but open-minded. Uh, and this is um, following on from uh, our friends at Tailenders being made the co-chairs of the Oval Invincibles. But And that's a very high-profile club, you know, plays at the Oval, fashionable sure. club. Greg, Felix, yep. very fashionable men. Yep. You and me, not quite so fashionable. Podcast, not quite so big. Cardiff, not quite so fashionable in cricket terms and Wales being a smaller club. I think it works. The silent letter in the ECB um, yes. is, is, is where <laughs> where we belong. Interesting stuff out of India as well. Harmapreet Kaur, no regrets oh. over what happened in Bangladesh. Uh, this, is, this is a quote from her, which I think is worth reading in its entirety. It's from the, the cricket paper. I will not say that I regret anything because at the end of the day as a player, you want to see that fair things are happening. As a player, you always have the right to express yourself and what you're feeling. I don't think I said anything wrong to any player or any person. I just said what happened on the field. I don't regret anything. Can I clarify, you don't actually have the right to express yourself if what you're expressing is maligning the reputation of professionals in the exercise of their duty by saying that umpires are cheats and corrupt, um, which is essentially the implication, whatever the, you know, not saying that it was corrupt by virtue of being paid off, but that their decision-making was deliberately erroneous in the match. That was the implication. That's a, a, a bizarre doubling down, but to be expected, I suppose. Yeah, to be expected. And, you know, it's like when you hear that, um, when you often hear people cite freedom of speech when they say something utterly outrageous in, in the public debate. Yeah, but that doesn't mean you're free from criticism and you're free from repercussions and free from consequence. And, and so it was for Harman Preet after that disgraceful uh, set of comments and, and the way she behaved against Bangladesh. And, you know, we discussed it at the time, but I'm not surprised that that's Harman Preet's position because, well, she's too big to fail. There's almost nothing that she could do that would see her get in any meaningful trouble for all the obvious reasons. Yeah, and, you know, a player who I've loved watching bat over the journey and that, um, yeah, it doesn't doesn't fill you with any particularly good feelings, particularly when you're from the richest country going around playing against um, a country without anything like the same resources in Bangladesh. And to finish off the segment, I heard you and Daniel speaking too about Metro Bank fever the new ailment that's sweeping the nation. Um, he's got a bad case of it. You're catching one. You yeah. might be transmitting one to me down the screen. Uh, what's going on in the, the Metro Bank Cup, which is the domestic 50-over comp in England? Well, first things first, what a great um, what a great tie-in there. I think Metro Bank just sort of fits better than... Like, it just feels like a better fit than the Royal London Cup, which always felt a bit hoity-toity for me. Metro Bank feels more, you know, feels more belt and braces, feels more relatable. Like, you, you know, the Metro Bank are on your high street, right? Um, mm-hmm. The Royal London Cup, it feels a bit, you know... Uh, 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 that's strawberries like. and cream strawberries and cream you've got it well put um, but yeah I think it's right that we give it a little bit of love we're not going to go into great detail but I do know that tomorrow or tomorrow being Tuesday we're recording on Monday afternoon is the final set of group games then we're into the finals and, and the and the grand final um, which is at Trent Bridge that used to be always at Lord's dance. Used to always be at Lords the one day final. I don't know whether I, you know, Trent Bridge, great ground, adore it. I think you should earn the right to go to Lords if you get to the 50 over cup final. Anyway, that's on the 16th of September. Peter Hanscom was in the runs for Leicestershire to to guarantee their their, their progress. They're seven and one, Leicestershire. So they're, they're in the mix mm. to get promoted in the county championship. They didn't have a good campaign in the blast, but, you know, they're, they're making it count in 50 over cricket and having a decent run of it in, in the four-day stuff. Also from Group A, Hampshire, Lancashire, Kent in the mix. Surrey have only won one game, 
And they're not helped by the schedule at all clashing with the 100 because, you know, Surrey are a powerful club. We talk about them all the time. 13 of their staff are playing in the 100, which meant that they were so understaffed for the uh, Metro Bank game last week, they had to call Tom Laws back from the Invincibles to turn out. Otherwise, they couldn't have fielded 11 players without having to go into presumably non-contracted Surrey representatives. So I think with that, you can form the case for the 50-over comp in time being played in April and May. I'm not the first person to say this or advance this argument. I've written about it multiple times that you could play the 50-over comp um, in the cooler months. You know, April's tend to be pretty chilly. It's more conducive to running around and playing 50-over cricket than having three slips in a gully when it's two degrees at Lords or whatever and play that for the first month or so of the season before getting into the, the Red Bull stuff and having maybe some county championship clashing with the 100 when there are fewer cricketers who are, who are pulled in two directions. Whereas white ball cricketers, you know, if, if you're a... It, it's improbable you'd be a specialist 50-over player, right? It doesn't quite break down in that specified a way. It's, it's white ball, red ball... This point. Anyway, anyway, I digress. Um, in Group B, there's Warwickshire, um, Worcestershire, and Gloucestershire, who are the top three at the moment. We've seen Ed Barnard making plenty of runs for for Warwickshire, having moved over from Worcester. He's made 490 runs at 82. Privy Shaw um, made a big double hundred, and then did his knee. He could have been a smoky for that um, India Asia Cup slash World Cup squad that we discussed off the top of the show. But he's got a knee injury, which sounds relatively serious, which he's acquired playing for Northamptonshire. And with the wickets leading the way is Oliver Hannan-Dolby from Warwickshire, who's taken 23 of them, leading by eight on that measure. I'm pretty sure he listens to the final word. He's engaged with a couple of things we've done over the years. So well played him. And having taken 14 wickets is Ian Holland, reality TV's own, the man who won a contract to be a Victorian rookie listed player all the way back in 2012. Um, Still doing his thing for Hampshire as an all-rounder. 14 wickets at 13 at an economy rate of just 3.8, so um, playing beautifully for Hampshire, who are a chart still of making the postseason. So that's uh, that's Metro Bank fever. We might do more on that next week. All right, let's take one more break, and then we'll be on the home straight for the final word. Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Levin. It is still the final word. It's still Jeff Lemon. It's still Adam Collins. Nothing about that has changed. What has changed is the world. The world is changing because the ICC Hackathon Part 2 is up and it is about, Adam. I mean, when Part 1 happened, we said, surely they can't equal that again. Surely they can't match it. And yet here we are. I just think about, you know, having worked in comms, you know, it's been a while now, but I used to. You you sort of, you feel sorry for uh, those comms professionals who are commissioned with writing press releases like this, who are tasked with the job of trying to put into normal speak the message. And with due respect to our colleagues, whoever wrote this at the ICC, I don't think they've quite achieved their objective here. This might be uh, geared more um, those who might participate in the hackathon more than you and I, but it is a media release after all. And um, yeah, good luck trying to work out what this is exactly. I would like to share this with our audience. I think it is worth it is, it is it is worth the recitation. The ICC, with its official fintech infrastructure partner and leading real-time global payments platform, invites all cricket-loving technologists to revolutionize the sport through cutting-edge innovation as part of the Next In Hackathon, a unique platform that brings together technologists from around the world who share a passion for cricket. The second edition promises to be bigger and better, offering participants the chance to showcase their skills, collaborate with like-minded individuals, 
individuals and contribute to the evolution of cricket in a digital age, culminating in the hackathon final in India during the World Cup. Through this platform, technologists will have the opportunity to develop innovative solutions that can elevate high-performance training, enhance fan engagement, and encourage mass participation. What does that mean? Well, first of all, we... What does any of that mean? Do we know when... I mean, it says it, it, it speaks to the final in India during the World Cup. So we know when this is. We know when the fucking World Cup when, games when are going to be. <laughs> but we know when the hackathon <laughs> final is going to be. Um... <laughs> We don't know what the hackathon is. Um, <laughs> but we know when it is. But we have a, we have a good steer as to when it is. Mm-hmm. Now, just for the, the, small, the small matter of what the fuck is when going on here. When are the semis? When <laughs> the, the finals in India? When are the quarters? When are the, when is Arantxa Sanchez Vicario into the quarters? Who's, you know, who's in the round of 16? Thomas Muster. Yeah. Do, do we think, is Australia going to get out of the group stage? Will Sam Kerr's calf injury <laughs> derail them at the group stage? Who's getting bundled out? You can only ever get bundled out of a Grand Slam. Well, it sounds True. like um, uh, sounds like uh, you can get bundled out of the hackathon as well. I mean, as I say, you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty hard gig to get right working for the ICC and comms. You'd have thought that that's a the sort of organisation that has a pretty rigorous recruitment process and. That's who I have sympathy th- sympathy with um, when I see something like this go out, having written yeah. a press release or two in my time, that someone got forced to, to draft this. There was another one, Cricket Australia had one about the HCL Tech, which is a company we've looked oh, at yeah. before on this particular segment as well. I think, they were a, I think they were a, um, weren't, that, weren't HCL Tech the name of an episode at some point many years ago? Yes. I think it was, uh, I think the name of the episode was Transforming Technology Through Technology Transformation, <laughs> which is what they <laughs> promised us that they were going to do. Um, a, a, an episode we might have recorded with Daniel Norcross around a lunch table at some point many, many, many years mm, ago. Mm. It's, it's also a partnership that promises the implementation of new innovative technologies to improve the digital experience experiences of all those across Australian cricket to take CA's digital offerings to the next level, including immersive digital experiences for fans, players, partners, employees and volunteers. And once again, what... The tiny fuck, does any of that mean? What are they doing? You know, and, and I'd like to finish off with, with Nick Hockley's bit in the... They've, they've re-signed their ASIC steel, um, who've been... Uh, doing the training kit we share a passion for innovation and excellence in the high performance arena ah oh, the sincerity from nick hockley beautiful beautiful stuff from the chief executive jeff you've dropped into our show notes here you've got some fun umpiring stuff to talk about i'm not yeah. exactly sure what this is so uh, over to okay. you before we wrap up the show let me explain this to you this came in of course from brian withington ah. leaders of the guardian over by over will know as the man who leads off the line just about every day One of the reader email. One of the kindest um, people I've come across on the OBO, he once sent me a, a Bangladesh World Cup top from 2019 and when it got lost in the post, he sent me another one and one for Winnie when she was just born as well. So um, uh, I look forward to Winnie being big enough to wear the Bangladesh away top from the 2019 World Cup at some point. Go the Bengals. So this, this goes all the way back. This is an email I discovered that I hadn't noticed at the time I think and it was about when the Dutch were playing the Scots in the qualifier the World Cup qualifier where the Netherlands got through by they had to chase a score before the end of the 45th over whatever it was in order to get past Scotland on net run rate so if they won the match but took too long to do it they still weren't going to qualify so he lays it out in this way the Dutch 
They had to do it in 44 overs, I think, in order to be sure of qualifying. So they needed 278. And if they did it off 44.1 overs, they would have missed out. However, if scores were level at that point and they got their score up to 283 by hitting, say, a six off the last ball, after 45 overs, they would have been ahead on net run rate. So if they'd, if they'd reached the score just at the start of that over, then they would have fallen short on net run rate. But if they'd exceeded that score by the end of the over, they would have gone through. Right? You, you're with me so far? Yep. Okay. So he says, basically, Scotland would have had an incentive to try to let the Dutch win off 44.1 overs as long as they didn't go past the score that they needed to chase. Mm -hmm. So if they made a higher score than the score they needed to chase, basically to deny them a boundary off the last ball. Right. So if scores were level and they hit a boundary, even if they'd gone past the 44th over, they still could have gone through. And thus he posited that they could have done this by bowling deliberate wides or no balls that ah, would have counted yes. as part of the deliveries bold. So say you, you come into that 45th over and you know that as long as the Dutch only make 278, they're not going to go through. But if they make, say, 282, 283, they will go through. Mm. You just feed them enough wides until you get their score in increments of one run up to the score that they needed to um, to reach in order to win the match. They would have won the match but not qualified on net run rate, which is a, a quirk that I hadn't thought of. And he was basically asking whether whether this was something a team would, would have thought of doing or could have thought of doing. Your first impressions? My first impressions is no, they wouldn't have considered it because I just don't think that there's anyone in the dressing room thinking about this to such an extent. Like you can't... No. I don't think in a professional environment you can get yourself bogged down in thinking about the money issue to this extent. So I don't think it would have been considered. Had it happened, it would have caused quite the brouhaha. Oh, yeah. My gut is that's probably fine. I mean, uh, oh, gosh, it's murky. It's grey area. My gut feel mm. is that's probably fine in the same way that was Trevor Chappell permitted to bowl underarm? Yes, he was. Mm. Of course it was, you know, but as far as I don't think there's a way you could strike it off. I mean, yeah, I, I don't think they would have had the, I don't think they would have had to have fronted the judiciary, mm. you know, whatever the equivalent is. They yep. wouldn't have had to have get, they might've got a, a slap over the wrist from the media, but I don't think it would have changed the result. That's just my instinct though. Keen for your yeah, thoughts. I, su I suspect it would have been one of those immediate MCC rewrites of a law <laughs> happening straight after this. Right, yeah. <laughs> but but the only thing that could it could um, come into relation to might be Law 42.2, which is fair and unfair play is the responsibility of umpires, which says this, the umpires shall be the sole judges of fair and unfair play. If either umpire considers an action not covered by the laws to uh. be unfair... He shall intervene without appeal, and if the ball is in play, call and signal dead ball and implement the procedure as set out in uh, section 18 below. Otherwise, umpires shall not interfere with the progress of play without an appeal. So they can umpires can unilaterally say that anything that's not specifically covered could be uh, struck off, and the ball could be deemed dead if yeah, they deemed yeah. that. So maybe the first wide you'd get away with, but once you bowl two or three in a row and they start to figure out that you're doing it deliberately, then they could start chalking those off. But, I mean, it's 
that that raises an argument about whether you could say this is covered by another part of the laws, therefore they don't have the authority to unilaterally intervene in that way. It's an interesting one anyway. Yeah, nice one. The beauty of cricket is that it always throws up situations which might or might not contravene the laws all down to interpretation, and I think that's um, squarely in that category. All right, I think that is enough from us for this week. Well, you'll be doing a lot more stuff this week. Yes. For this weekly show, this edition of The Final Word, weekly as it has never been called, but I suppose could be. If you want to get in touch with us, support the show, patreon.com slash word is the way to do that. And there will be plenty going on in Scotland over the next few days. If you're in that part of the world, drop Adam a line one way or another. You can find us on the internet and get in touch. Um, there will be final word matches being played, all the rest of it. There'll be more episodes coming up in the feed, including the Scotland special and story time on the weekend. For now, that's enough. We'll see you next time. Bye. I had to go about-